1: What a wonderful
0: world. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore,
2: And this is Lois Richter in beautiful Davis, California.
0: Well, we need to just jump right in here with the main story of the last few days, which has been the extraordinary heat wave we've been experiencing in the western states and the highest temperatures in the region. The highest temperatures in California have been primarily around Sacramento, the Sacramento Valley. Davis on Monday, Labor Day, hit 115 degrees, an all-time high temperature record. Not to be outdone, we hit 115 again briefly on Tuesday afternoon. So 106 this afternoon, Wednesday, as we're doing this broadcast It's already there, suggesting we might get up a couple more degrees. Night temperatures have been remarkable, uh, barely getting below 80 degrees after midnight, finally dropping down into the mid 70s by sunrise, and then starting up again. So, the forecast from uh, Thursday forward is uh, Thursday, the day of the broadcast, 110 degrees again. Thursday night, I really should say early Friday morning, 70 degrees. Friday, hazy, Er, then sunny, 105. Friday night, 63 degrees. Slight improvement there. Saturday, partly sunny, 88 degrees. Saturday night, mostly cloudy. We'll talk about that in a moment. 63 degrees. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 89. And Sunday night, partly cloudy with a low around 62. Warming up again, Monday, sunny with a high near 90 is about average high for this time of year, just for the record. Monday night, mostly clear with a low around 60. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 85. Tuesday night, clear with a low around 56. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 84. What's going on out there? Well, an extremely dominant high-pressure ridge has built up over the entire western states. I think it was centered on the Four Corners region, shifted over to Nevada. Um, The Extended discussion, which is what we're mostly concerned about now as it finally breaks down, the long wave trough will approach the west coast on Sunday into early next week. As embedded short waves move through the Pacific Northwest, lingering moisture from Hurricane K over the area will result in increased cloudiness and cooler temperatures over the weekend and early into the week. Below normal, high temperatures are expected with cooling trend on Sunday into Wednesday. Threat of showers or thunderstorms possible each day over portions of the eastern foothills and mountains. Obviously, this has a lot of impact on people, but what people have been asking me about is what is the impact on plants. When plants encounter unusually high temperatures over a long period of time, a number of changes occur. Root growth, we surmise, slows or stops. The ability of roots to supply the top with water decreases. And if the soil moisture is unevenly distributed because you have poor irrigation efficiency or poor distribution, the problem will be exacerbated. As the plant fails to take in water to the degree that it needs, the leaf stomata, which are the structures on the underside of the leaf that open or close to release water vapor, they will close. The cooling system for the plant then gets less efficient just when it needs it most. Remember, these are temperatures well above what most plants are accustomed to. I wanna emphasize that this is a lot like a major freeze event in the sense that we can talk about frost protection, not a major freeze event. We can talk about shading young plants. We can talk about protecting young plants from direct sun. We're 115 degrees. This is a, a step above what all of those protective measures might provide, although they may be important in some cases. When it's this hot and the cooling system of the plant is less efficient, Photosynthesis is also less efficient. Photoinhibition, which leads to different compounds being produced from photosynthesis, develops an increase. This means less of the product of photosynthesis is being stored, and that's an important change. With less production and less storage of energy compounds in the plant, the things the plant uses to keep running, the plant may start shedding organs. I use that term. An organ in the case of a plant can be developing flower buds or developing fruit or almost mature fruit. Organs also include root hairs, new growth, new leaves, green tissue. Those are all things that will be affected by the impact of these very high temperatures. This is an important one because we've already seen problems from this. It is likely that plants that have waxy leaf coatings, think of ivy, Pittosporum, privets, things like that, they sustain that coating less effectively. The plant is less able to provide that that waxy coating over the leaf. That leads to thinner leaf coverings and therefore sunburned foliage. We see that from regular drought stress under normal temperature conditions here. I expect with even slight drought stress and these extreme conditions, we will see more of it. It shows up first as a sort of a bleached or yellowing appearance on the part of the leaf that is most directly exposed to the sun. I can usually say this leaf was pointing south or west and that's why this part of the leaf got burned. Leaf shape makes a big difference in how much damage there is. That sunburned foliage is most likely to occur on broadleaf evergreens, privets, Pittosporum, star jasmine, xylosma, things like that, the ones that have that waxy leaf coating and they get scorched during a heat wave. Conditions are very favorable, for infection at the stem or the root flare, the uh, point where the trunk of the plant goes into the ground, by water molds, the one we talk about all the time being Phytophthora, Phytophthora cinnamomi, that in conditions favorable for infection by those organisms is high moisture, high temperature right around the crown of the plant. Well, if you've got anything causing oxygen depleted conditions around the roots or moisture trapped around the stem, you're asking for trouble. I mentioned oxygen depleted conditions around the roots. I had an email from someone wanting to know they're about to kill their lawn in order to put in new landscaping, new low water landscaping. And in the lawn is the autumn blaze maple. And their question was, how close to the trunk of the tree can we get with the black plastic we're putting down to kill the grass? And I said, that's not my first concern when I hear this question. Putting black plastic over the root zone of a maple tree in the summertime in the Sacramento Valley is asking for trouble. You're reducing the oxygen exchange. In fact, you're eliminating the oxygen exchange that those roots need. And you're going to be irrigating under there. You probably mentioned he was going to run the irrigation system first, so the tree would have the water it needs. It said. So you're going to create moist, oxygen-deprived conditions under high temperatures. We usually refer to phytophthora as crown rot but we really should call it by its more official full common name which is crown and root rot because we don't just damage trees with phytophthora at the crown we also can injure them when there's oxygen depleted conditions around the roots for example from black plastic on the surface Woven landscape fabrics are less of a problem, but they're still a problem to some degree. Bark, coarse things like that, not a problem at all because there's still oxygen exchange going on there. So remember, Phytophthora is often called crown and root rot because of these different modes of infection and injury to the plant. Moisture needs to be applied evenly and thoroughly to the whole root zone of the plant, preferably before the heat sets in. I irrigated when this was all announced about a week ago that we were gonna have this major heat wave. I went ahead and ran irrigation systems all around my property, wanting to give a very deep soaking to the bigger woody plants and of course the many garden plants as well. But I ran it longer than usual a few days ago so that there would be extra moisture further down and further out. A real simple truism about your drip irrigation system is that most of the problems you have with distribution can can, can be managed by running it longer. You know, if you aren't getting perfect distribution with 30 minutes, try 45 and see if that covers some of those drier areas. Well, we're talking a couple hours or more, several hours soaking with a drip irrigation system before the heat event would have been optimal. I don't really want you running that kind of water during extreme heat because you'd be running that moisture right near the crown and of course possibly leading to oxygen deprivation around the roots as well. So we'll have to have this trade-off between preventing drought injury on the plant and preventing root injury from excess moisture under high temperature conditions. But making sure that the water is going out around the whole root zone of the tree, particularly in larger woody plants, these are my main concern right now, is the big plants that can be stressed and weakened and become hazardous and become a risk if they are actually stressed by this kind of heat, if there's not adequate moisture in the full root zone. You may have to do some remedial watering after this passes to try and recover some of those plants. Things to be aware of, um, Increasing the moisture and the atmospheric humidity around plants probably helps protect them to some degree. I'm talking about garden plants right now. In our garden center, we wash everything off early on a very hot day, and we wash everything off and plants, paths, benches, everything towards the end of the day as well. And that's partly to wash off spider mites and minimize white flies. That's one of the reasons we adopted the practice. It also increases the moisture content, protects them from drying out, especially if the wind kicks in as we change from one weather pattern to another. Uh, What we do find is that It encourages beneficial insects and helps protect the plants from direct heat stress. So I do think rinsing things off early in the day and again late in the day if you're in a low humidity, arid climate such as ours can be very beneficial. just want to repeat, getting water on the leaves when it's hot and uh, there's sunlight on the leaves does not harm them. Contrary to popular belief, those droplets do not magnify the rays of the sun, do not burn the leaves. That's a a myth, and it's been widely disproven, but it is still, I understand, widely believed. Uh, You can go ahead and rinse things off in the middle of the day on a very hot day. It's certainly beneficial to the plants and also provide some moisture, as we've said many times before, for the beneficial insects and the birds that are coming through and trying to find moisture wherever they can. Be aware that leaf injuries, such as I described on broadleaf evergreens, will very likely lead to necrotic areas, dead areas, within a few days. It looks like there's a disease. It looks, well, there is, there's bacteria there, but it's not a pathogen that's attacking the plant. These are bacteria, secondary impact, they're coming in because it was damaged, they're just eating away the part that is essentially dead and can lead to dead, as I say, necrotic areas. Some of them may even fall out and leave a hole there, so it looks like something was chewing on it. There's secondary effects from the sunburn that occurred on the foliage. Um, those are symptoms. Those are not. A ca- There's no causal organism there that you need to be concerned about. Don't prune when it's really hot. You shouldn't be out there anyway. Don't mow your lawn when it's really hot, unless you really want to kill it out, because that's one of the fastest ways to kill out fescue grasses. In particular, is to mow them, exposing their relatively high growing points under high temperature conditions. They'll thin out very, very badly, especially creeping red fescue, which is a popular. A lawn alternative used as an unmowed meadow. This would definitely not be the time to go in and mow it down to manage weeds or anything like that. Don't mow your lawn when it's this hot. Do not leave water trickling at the crown of a plant. In other words, right next to the woody part of the plant five feet away, I'm less concerned about it. I've got people right now who are watering their redwoods because they look so bad. They've got the hose at a quarter turn, you know, it's just trickling over there, then they move it to the next spot a few feet away and doing that around the tree. Far less concerned about injury from that than I am from having it trickling right at the base where the wood or the trunk of the tree is in contact with the soil how the plant responds afterward is going to vary by species and we can't really give you a full on you know species by species description some may not have time now to put on new growth after their leaves get burned. Japanese maple, for example, probably their growing cycle is done for the season. So you're just gonna look at burnt plant for the rest of the summer and fall until they drop their leaves. Others likely will re-sprout fairly quickly. Uh, Pittosporum tobira, I suspect right after, if you trimmed it back a little bit, would flush out some new growth. So you could get that plant looking good this fall. The others, well, they're just gonna look rough for the rest of the season. Plants that are wilting with adequate soil moisture after the heat of midday, so you go out there towards dusk, and a plant is wilting, don't rush over to water it. I've already had one picture sent to me. Uh, it was a choisia, choisia ternata, Mexican mock orange. Yet another plant that we call mock orange because of the wonderful fragrance of the uh, of the flowers, which smells like lemon blossoms. And the plant was drooping very badly, and some branches had already died. Fortunately, from the picture, I was able to see, since my first inclination would have been, oh, this plant is drought stressed, it looked like it was wilting from lack of water, but I could see that the bark, there's a good couple inches of bark underneath this plant, was also damp. I could see by the color change, and so I was able to inquire a little bit about the irrigation drip irrigation watering right at the base, a couple inches of bark around it, and unfortunately it is very clear from the picture and from subsequent uh, conversation that Phytophthora has attacked, her crown rod has attacked that plant right at the point of the interface of the crown, the stem, and the soil. So the only suggestion I could make, first of all, her, her inclination was to water, and uh, that's definitely not what you want to do in that situation. Pull back the bark, Open it up a little bit around that plant. Try to get some more air movement around there. Make sure the soil nearby is adequately watered. You know, we've had many conversations about people just watering right at the base of the plant, then bone dry soil two, three, four feet away. Make sure there's a reservoir of moisture nearby and be very careful not to irrigate that plant again until the surface right around the base of it has begun to dry out a little bit more. This is where daily watering or every other day with a drip system with a heavy mulch can lead to problems in high temperatures. It'd be better in this situation to have watered that plant very thoroughly on Saturday going into the heat wave rather than having the irrigation continuing right on through the heat wave. Hard to say what will happen to that when I've seen plants recover from Phytophthora, but far more commonly once it's invaded to the point that you're seeing wilt or, or drooping on the plant, it's gone and you're probably going to have to replace it. Good news, you can put a new plant in the same spot, adjust your irrigation practices. You could even use the same species if you wanted to. Though personally, I'd be disinclined to, uh, but you can just change it so that you don't have the conditions that favor Phytophthora when we have an episode of extremely high temperatures in the Sacramento Valley, as we will have, have had before, and we will have again in the future. Young citrus and young avocado trees might benefit from some light shade, especially from the West. You probably know already if they're going to sunburn because it would have happened on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. But, uh, injury from cold and injury from heat are both cumulative and both to some extent reversible so if that plant has been looking stressed and you know it's been watered correctly it certainly won't hurt. Stick a couple of stakes in the ground due west of the plant put some shade cloth over them so that at least shade is cast onto the plant mid to late afternoon on until the end of the day and in the case of avocados in particular the trunk needs to be painted with an interior white latex paint or a tree trunk paint so that that does not sunburn citrus. It's also done very commonly, but avocados are particularly vulnerable. Again, we won't know for sure the full extent of the damage from this kind of weather event until a few days later. I've already warned the staff, you know, it's every heat wave five to seven days afterwards, people come in with drought issues, crown rot issues, sunburn issues, and they in many cases think they have a disease or a pest problem where more typically it's just been a physiological response to the extreme heat. This is even more extreme than that. These are records that are being set. So we don't know for sure what we're going to see, but I anticipate scorched foliage withered along the edges in the case of plants that did not have adequate irrigation. And the very likely situation will be brown spots developing in turf due to the rapid spread of certain fungus diseases that attack what we call cool season turf, such as perennial ryegrass, bluegrass, uh, creeping red fescue, and the other types of of grasses that we made up lawns in in the past and are still common constituents of lawns in older neighborhoods, very vulnerable to fusarium blight and certain other diseases spreading very rapidly when we have high temperatures and moisture trapped down, especially if there's any amount of thatch in the turf. There is no reason to spray a fungicide for that. This is a response to an extreme weather event. What you want to do is rake out the dead stuff. Uh, If you're going to continue to have a lawn in that area, then go ahead and seed in fresh turf, preferably a more drought tolerant, preferably a more valley tolerant type of grass, in the fall and by fall i mean when the rainy season is nearly upon us rather than doing it when the temperatures are high so your injury to your turf is correctable simply by seeding in better turf species injury to your woody plants a very deep soaking after this is over after we're getting back into cooler weather may be very appropriate one final thing Uh, Tomatoes and peppers are continuing to ripen, although much more slowly on the vine because of these high temperatures. The plant shuts down the ripening process during high temperatures. And unfortunately, the fruit is still vulnerable to sunburn if it's exposed to direct sun, especially in the afternoon. So going out early in the day and harvesting any that are anywhere on the color spectrum of ripeness, bringing them in, setting them on the counter, and then allowing them to fully ripen properly indoors on your kitchen counter and enjoy them when they are fully ripe.
2: You know, Don, there's a lot of people out there who listen to our show all the time, and they might wonder what KDRT is. What is it?
0: It's community radio. It's radio of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's That's public.
2: Sort of American,
0: <laughs> doesn't it? It's as American as cherry pie. Uh, public <laughs> radio. It depends on li- on contributions from listeners to fund our operating costs. All the people who are listening, if they like it, they go over to KDRT.org and they click on the support button and they find a bunch of ways, really simple ways they can send a one-time contribution or they can set it up monthly. And that's what funds... Our operating costs at KDRT. Our tiny staff. Our tiny studios. They're a little more spacious than they used to be. KDRT is community radio. It's your radio station. Really, you can even do a show here if you want to. I mean, that's that's. Uh, I won't say it's simple, but it because we do them and it does take time, and you need to put together a good program for people. But if you're interested info at kdrt.org is the place to get more information i'd like to mention some of the great programming here at kdrt you can join the alchemist as he is raised from the dead every friday from 10 to midnight pacific standard time on kdrt.org or 95.7 fm and on the whispering wind conjuring the lost souls of horrendous hideous heavy metal tracks to bleed the ears the alchemist blends scaring guitars thundering drums, bludgeoning bass, and silent screams into a vortex of black doom, extreme thrash, and technical classical metal music. hello awaits at The Alchemist. That's on Fridays, 10 p.m. to uh, midnight. And it replays, well, actually, no, it doesn't replay. So you can go there by Friday, <laughs> 10 p.m., and there's a podcast available. That's Reaper Radio at KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, California.
2: Well, Don, here's a question from the mailbag care for palm trees, Alyssa writes, my husband and I just bought our first house, yay, which means that we have now become the owners of two old big trees. I'm guessing they are palm trees. Not sure what the difference is between palms and yuccas. Any tips on how to care for them? The house is in Concord, California, uh, P.S. We listen every week and love your show. We are upgrading from a small 20-foot patio garden. So we'll be looking forward to trying out some of the plants discussed in past shows. Also, if you have any tips for transplanting established roses, it would be much appreciated. So let's first talk about the picture she sent. Yeah, a huge palm tree in her backyard.
0: That's a great picture. What you have here is a Washingtonia palm, which is actually, um, what you have here is the one that's native to Mexico. And there's another species of Washingtonia that's native to Southern California. Anybody who's traveled into Anza Borrego desert, uh, there's a park there and the oases in that park have these as native species there. This is an indestructible tree. I mean, Washingtonia palms are our classic Native California palm. No, they're not native up here. They're not native anywhere in Northern California, and they're certainly not native in Concord, California. But they grow very well in Northern California. In fact, they're thrilled to be up here because they get more water than they do in Southern California, and they're not fussy about that. Palms, unlike many natives, really uh, you can't really overwater them. They're from the washes. They're from the oasis areas where the water happens to be in a desert, and they uh, only care if it's ever really given to Washingtonia palms is that many people. Prune up or hire tree services to prune up the old dead fronds because they don't drop clean. Or when they do drop clean, it's scary because it happens during a windstorm and they have hooks, hook like, thorn like structures on the petioles. So most people every several years pay a tree service to come in. And these are tree services that do this as a specialized service to climb up there or more likely use a bucket truck and cut off all those dead looking fronds Main reason being, um, if someone were to torch them, it's quite a fire. Uh, it's extremely exciting when it happens. They go up like a Roman candle. I have one on my property. I have two on my property that I've been fortunate enough to allow that skirt to develop as they would in nature because I'm on a farm and I'm not surrounded by people who are going to start fires and I'm not concerned about it if I were anywhere near a residential setting I would have them removed because if they did get ignited it would be very dramatic so that would be the one thing that is done beyond that if you water them they'll grow faster if you don't water them they won't grow quite so quickly they're completely tolerant of drought they can live on natural rainfall here their roots are fairly aggressive right around the tree the roots of palms are interesting they're all adventitious roots. They don't have a taproot or a branched root system the way a normal tree does because they're monocots. They're more like a grass than like a woody tree. And so they don't have roots going way out from the tree that's going to be a problem in your garden, but it can be really hard to plant right directly underneath them because they get quite a network of roots there. In fact, it's this limited but very effective root system of palms that makes it possible for companies to to dig up even very mature palm trees, sell them to you at a price per foot based on the species and move them from one place to another very easily. Plant palms transplant very, very readily because the root systems are relatively limited and it's easy to get most of the root system by a process of digging and moving. You don't have to do anything at all for them. Your watering you're doing elsewhere will be just fine. So the only thing you might think about is having a tree service at some point prune off those lower dead fronds and have that done every few years, simply to reduce the fire hazard. makes great wildlife habitat. Sometimes wildlife you're not too thrilled about, like tree rats, but more commonly birds, things like that. And uh, other than that, they really don't require much of anything at all. And they do, here's the downside, even though they're native, they do flower and that's cool and interesting. And then they set little fruit, which are technically edible, though you aren't gonna particularly like them. Birds like them. And so little palm seedlings tend to scatter themselves about. And directly in the vicinity of Washingtonia palms, it's very common to get lots of seedlings coming up. You should make a decision about each one pretty quickly. They're very easy to pull when they're six inches tall. They're really hard to pull when they're a foot tall. At some point you have to start digging them out. So I'd suggest you learn to recognize the seedlings. And probably my suggestion would be to pull them out wherever you see them.
2: I notice in your photo that someone who used to own this property was doing cutting because yeah. I can see where on the bottom part those fronds have been removed. So um, yeah, it's not it's not that hard to It's do. not hard.
0: It's, it's a little dangerous. As you'll find if you go in there, uh, the petiole of the leaf has these recurved thorn-like structures that resemble fish hooks. So if you're going to do it yourself, wear, wear something to protect your, your hands and obviously your forearms and be very careful because as those, those things fly about, they can snag. So generally speaking, people will pay a tree service to do it, especially once it gets above a certain point. As to the question- Having a
2: professional is always good in this case because yeah. it, you know it, the first time you've done it, you're going to be the worst time you've done it. So-
0: Yeah, and the good news is you won't actually hurt the tree if you do something wrong. There isn't really anything wrong to do. It's more of a hazard to you than anything. But um, I think that you might want to just get a bid at some point so you know what it's going to cost and have that done every few years. Let's put it that way. Now, what was the other question?
2: Oh, about transplanting roses. And, And I have this question, too. I have a rose that's now in the shade, used to be in the sun can you move them how can you move them
0: oh god should, yes i've moved i have should moved you
2: move should you just make a cutting or what
0: should well, you well that's do- that's often the easiest i mean if you have a rose that's really big and you want to get a new version of it many roses if not most roses will actually root quite readily from the cutting so and you can take that cutting easily in the winter time when they're dormant those are cane cuttings is what we call them you just take it and when it's dormant you cut it to 12 to 16 inches you stick it in a rooting medium Uh, we can talk about that when that time comes around we're doing hundreds of cuttings ourselves and growing many of our own roses at my business one thing we found that really really hastens the process if you guys are getting serious out there about this miss bench we just built one the staff filled it up within a day (laughs) because they're so cool and so fun you need a timer that goes 30 seconds of mist every five minutes Around the clock, so it's just making this mist of high high humidity atmosphere around them. It's miraculous what will root on a mist bench, and with a mist bench, you can take rose cuttings any time of year. Because the risk, if you don't have a mist bench of taking a rose cutting when the tree is in or the bush is in leaf and growing, is it will desiccate and dry out uh, before it roots. Whereas in a mist bench, it won't do that. So we're having all kinds of fun now, rooting things that we didn't think we'd be able to root in the middle of the summer, and getting parsley seeds to germinate in seven days instead of thirty, and so on. I Misbenches mist benches are lots of fun. I'm gonna assume that you're probably not gonna build a mist bench. Roses can be very easy to move. It's not hard on the plant. Uh, I've moved many, many roses. I moved my Queen Elizabeth four times before I found the place that I really wanted, an eight foot rose, it's a tall rose. So I kept moving it around until I found the right place for it. Very easy to do when they're dormant, late December through the month of January here in Northern California. Pretty easy to do in the fall as they're going into dormancy. You're going to be cutting it back just mainly to handle it, not because it needs it, but mainly just to make it a more manageable thing. Do it when you have complete control over the soil moisture, which means to say you've irrigated it beforehand. This place it's going to go has been irrigated and the hole is ready for it. You dig it up. You're essentially bare rooting it because that's just what's going to happen as you go. So you move very quickly. You get it back in the ground. You water it in it barely misses a beat if you do it anytime between late October and about the 1st of February. It's very easy to move roses in principle. They can have much more extensive root systems than you think. I took me four hours once to move a rose that I really wanted and that I really wanted to move. It was a big old heirloom rose. It was, I was digging up the equivalent of about a 24 inch box size root system. That was the exception. So as you start digging to move your rose bushes, you will find out what kind of roots you're dealing with. If it's a regular old hybrid tea that you bought a few years ago or that was stuck in the ground sometime fairly recently, you're just digging up the equivalent of a 10 or a 15 gallon containers worth of roots. You move fast, you get it back in the ground, no problem. And in some cases, sometimes it doesn't work, but it's usually because they dry out. So most commonly, if you maintain adequate soil moisture during the whole process, it should move pretty easily.
2: All right. Let's go back to a question. By the way, Don, if someone wants to send us a question, where do they send that?
0: DavisGardenshow at gmail.com.
2: All right. Gail writes, I have been planning to put in more fruit trees. I still have holes and wonder what to put in. Oh, must be holes in the ground
0: has space available. Yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) This is a gardener gardener like me. I see a hole. A plant could go there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I see. And I was thinking you dig the hole, then you go and get the plant and put it now. Okay. Uh, Should we be thinking more drought tolerant than fruit trees? And if so, what would that be? And then Don wrote back saying fruit trees can be surprisingly drought tolerant yeah, if
0: there's, you do summer
2: pruning after the harvest, et cetera. We just talked about this part. So then Yeah, we'll, summer,
0: summer pruning can reduce water use, and so you could water less often once you're past the harvest and do that summer pruning. But, you know, pomegranates figs they
2: don't need anything
0: they don't even need to be watered i have figs on my farm that haven't been irrigated for more than three decades and they're they're living their roots have probably made their way to some of the nearby orchard irrigation we're talking 30 40 yards away so um, pomegranates, like think about where these come from, a very, very dry climates that sort are of very similar to California. I would say persimmons, in my experience, have been reasonably drought tolerant. You'll have some fruit loss. You won't get as many fruit developing. Oh, darn, you won't have 500 Fuyu persimmons. You'll have 200. I think that's probably plenty for most people. They like a deep watering intermittently, but I have a Fuyu persimmon that I water literally once a month during the course of the summer here. And in general, fruit trees, deep watering fairly infrequently compared to flowers, vegetable gardens, turf. They can be intermediate in terms of your landscape. If you're zoning your landscape by water use, fruit trees would need less frequent water, though deeper, than all of your garden plants. And then going from them out to xeric landscaping, where you have things that don't need water at all, would be a reasonable way to design your landscape. The areas where you don't want to be sitting around necessarily, but you want something to have pretty flowers, you can go with very low water plants, natives or aloes or something like that. In between, do your your fruit trees because they can be lower water closer in where you're going to be spending your time you have any turf that you're going to have have your flowers in your vegetable garden where they need the higher water input
2: if i have a tree that is 20 feet tall and let's say oh it's 20 feet across all right nice tree great mm-hmm. shade is is that tree going to be more or less drought tolerant then um, nearby, I have two 10 foot tall trees. Well, I guess it would have to be four 10 foot tall trees. <laughs> okay. So what are, are you? Is if to the height of the tree,
0: volume of the uh, foliage. The what? It's the volume of the foliage. So if someone asked me how many gallons to put on a tree, my first question would be, what's the canopy? And then I need to know what the species is, and we can do a calculation from there. Um, That's that's to give it optimal watering. So if I know that the water use coefficient for citrus is 70% compared to turf, and I know how many gallons of water... 10 by 10 area of turf would take and i have a 10 by 10 area of tree then we give it 70 percent of that i know that was a quick run through the numbers but that's the idea we know that it compares to turf in a particular way that's the coefficient it's based on its area square footage, which is uh, the coefficient factors in the volume, I can say for each one by going to the Wukol's data, remember that conversation way back in months ago, what that particular tree's water use coefficient is, almonds are up here, citrus are here, pomegranates are further down and so forth. Uh, But we also know that in a water emergency, and we are in a statewide water emergency, we've been asked to cut water by 30% you can go to the slide rule, which is where you just give the woody plants and many of the perennials in your yard 50% of the measured evapotranspiration rate, 50% of the ET. In our area, the ET right now is a little over two inches a week. So if you gave them one inch a week, they'd be okay. You could give them two inches every two weeks if you want to water deeper and wider. It's not optimal. They would be producing better with more water the, trees would be healthier, the flowering plants like great myrtles would bloom better, but it'll get us through the drought emergency. And this has been tested, it's an evidence-based approach, the slide rule. You can look on this U- University of California Center for Urban Horticulture slide rule, Google that, you'll find it. It's been tested and they you, you'll get adequate results with that. So all that complicated stuff I said first about the WUCO's data and the landscape coefficient, we can adopt something simpler in a time of drought emergency, which is 50% of measured ET, one inch a week, or two inches every two weeks, which is probably better for all the woodier plants in your yard, including your fruit trees. It's not perfect. It's not optimal. It's okay. It's acceptable. And this is an important distinction for ornamental landscapes, even those that include fruit trees, is that we'll go with acceptable because it's an emergency, because it's a drought. And we can go back to higher water use when we have more water available and the, you know, the drought emergency has been lifted. And we can go back to this 50% rate, If we have to, if there's a drought emergency, if everybody were watering at 50% right now, uh, 50% of the measured ET, significant reduction in water use would be very, very achievable.
2: Would 50% of the ET kill my redwoods?
0: It wouldn't be great, but it would be better than what a lot of people are doing. So the answer is no. A lot We're, of
2: people are turning it off. and Yeah, and
0: that's and terrible. They're dying all over town and they could be kept alive. So we have a tree that is now, after being planted here since the 1930s in the Davis and Sacramento area, has now proven, after extreme drought, the kind of drought that climate change is bringing about, is now proving to be an unacceptable species in terms of we aren't recommending them. We're not selling them. Nobody's saying, oh, I think a row of redwoods it would be great there. Uh, some people are doing that, but it's, it's fallen out of favor for good reason. Um, unfortunately, if you completely turn off your irrigation to your redwoods, you will now have a dead tree and a fire hazard on your hands. So a risk and a fire hazard, whereas 50% ET would be acceptable. 70% would be better. I would I would focus personally on certain species. If I were using a water budget, I would be giving more water to redwoods and maples and magnolias and um, think, birch. Uh, birch trees. Thank you. Those are the four big ones. I also mentioned linden and a couple others. If it's a kind of an East Coast tree or a coastal tree, probably should be getting more. And I would be watering less often on trees that I know can be on their own. I mean, many tree species are fine unirrigated once established. Most of the oaks, even when... Ones that aren't native to this area, can be fine on their own. They've probably tapped into water further out than you think, and so the biggest problem that I'm seeing, and I have to mention this over and over again, is where a whole neighborhood has done their part, and they've all stopped watering their lawns, and they're killing their trees. So some species are fine, some are not, it would be best if you could get a little advice about which ones need a little more attention as we go through yet another year of drought.
2: Hey, Don. What about onions? This is fall. Is it time to plant onions yet?
0: Well, my first question about whether it is time to plant onions came in early August. And I can tell you that there is no vegetable crop about which my customers get so passionate. I don't know why this is. Uh, yeah, even more than tomatoes. It's, it's really kind of a funny phenomenon. We actually at this point talk about these old guys and their onions. You know, they want their 100 this. They want 500 onions. They want me to set them aside when they come in. They get grumpy when they, a week has gone by in November. They haven't heard from me. It is kind of interesting. Um, the question was, it was a back and forth discussion on Facebook uh, in the local Facebook group about onions not having worked out well. And they started with those little bulbs that you can buy at hardware stores. And I jumped in and said, Well, that is actually your problem. And uh, because those don't work, Um, I'll just tell you a story. (laughs) <laughs>
2: Isn't it? That is the onion. Yeah, well,
0: what it's is- a it's a little baby, it's a baby bowl, but and in some places they may work. But I uh, I used to get my onion starts from a company called Lago Marcino Seeds in Sacramento. He was Lago, Earl Lago Marcino had been in the Italian district of Sacramento, which is a south part of town, Frazzanetti's Winery, Cordy Brothers, you know, all those Italians. They've been in Sacramento forever and ever and ever. And I sat with Earl at a lot of nursery association meetings when I was in my twenties and he was in his 80s. So they're I'm telling you something now, all these years later, that goes back 100 years. He's the one that told me why those little bulbs don't work, and he's absolutely right. Nurseries need to store them in cold storage until planting, and we don't do that. That's what it came down to. If they are put out in display in retail and put on the shelf or hanging on pegs or whatever, or outside, in either case, they're subjected to indoor temperatures or outdoor fluctuations, and that triggers that bulb upon planting and growing to think it's time to bloom. And so they always try to bloom, or a significant percentage of them will bloom instead of bulbing up properly. And the gardeners, in his opinion and my experience now, after all these years later, will always get better results planting onions from transplants. Or if you're a very patient person and have a protected place like a greenhouse, growing them from seed. Direct seeding onions in the ground, well, that'll be challenging because the seedlings are very, very fragile and they have to be thinned out and just one person walking across the bed will smash them. Bare root transplants have always given me the best results and that's why that's what I sell at my nursery. They're the size of a pencil. They look just like the green onions you buy in the grocery store and we don't get them until it's cool enough for us to hold these bare root little seedlings outside we don't want them indoors because the temperature is too warm for them we want them outside where it's cool enough for them to stay sort of semi-dormant until you can get them in the ground so we get well our little tiny nursery last year we brought in twenty-two thousand, <laughs> yeah twenty-two thousand Beirut root onions and they were gone in 10 days those wow. guys and their onions rush on down and get their onions as soon as we call them so we get them from a grower who custom grows them in their greenhouse they'll they seed them in september for us to sell in November. So if you wanna do your own from seed, that tells you what you need to do. Early September, mid-September is the time to start the seeds in flats, to grow them big enough to plant out later. But I'll tell you, a greenhouse gives you a much better product. Plant them as soon as you get them in November. Provide some kind of slow acting nitrogen at the time of planting. Manure is great, something like that. Water them really well if the winter is dry. And in the years past, we never really had to say that, but now that we've had years where we've gone through the whole month of January without rainfall, Water well if the winter is dry. We'll add that that bit of advice that we didn't used to have to say. Huge factor in success. If they dry out at all while they're growing in the early stages, the bulbs will not be as big, they get stressed, they're likelier to bloom. Bloom is not a good thing when you're growing onions for storage. You dry them down as the bulbs start to form, that's late spring, and then when you store them, make sure there's good airflow around them and under the bulbs that they're not touching each other so that if one spoils, it doesn't spread rapidly through the whole group. His comment to me that I have taken to heart is that we are in a golden zone for onions in the Sacramento Valley. We can grow any variety here. If you live up in Washington and you're listening to us, you grow grow certain types that are suitable up there, like Walla Wallas. If you live down near Texas, where one of the biggest onion growing companies in the world is, it sells the starts, you grow a different kind of onion. Um, We've grown both of those in our gardens here in Sacramento Valley and done well with them because we're intermediate on day length and we have sufficient rainfall most years and we dry off just perfectly. Our rainfall ends, just as the bulbs should be getting ready to bulb up. If they're not, just a little bit of watering as you go into the mid to late spring will keep the plants going until they get to that point. So you'll do well with almost any Onion variety here. The only one that I haven't had good results with is the red torpedo. It's very prone to flowering. And when it flowers, you can use it again. It doesn't spoil it, but it's hollow on the inside. So it doesn't store well. So I tell people who really like that one here yeah, we get some, grow them. But uh, if you really want to keep your onions, uh, keepers are going to be the yellow Stockton, the red burger, the, you know, the regular uh, walla walla. is ones like that. The red torpedo is not your best one for that. But in general, this is a great place to grow onions. Um, if if you do them from seedlings in November, you'll be harvesting May, June, July, depending on the variety. So there's a lot of varieties out there. Uh, Just good rule of thumb is the bigger the bulb, the longer it's going to take overall, but your timing is November planting for harvest in late spring.
2: So, you know, I got to ask that question. Yeah. If it looks like, um, a a green onion, why not just plant green onions? Won't they
0: bulb up? Yeah, they'll bulb up into, actually we sell um, in six packs, we sell four kinds of green onions. So there's some, there's several, They're sometimes called scallions, although that's technically a different thing. They're used in recipes like stir fry. Yes, they will. You can take those plants you buy in the grocery store and you can plant them out just like the bare root onions. They look very much the same. They They will typically make, most of the ones you buy that way are a white, rather hot, rather pungent onion that gets about three inches in diameter and it's a perfectly good onion, nothing wrong with it. I don't know what what the name of the variety it is. I have a grower who does four different kinds of green onions or bunching onions as they're called, one of which is red. I have planted them out just for fun to see what happens and they do make perfectly good bulbs. There's nothing wrong with those and you could do them in theory anytime really better though to put these in when the soil has cooled so they don't get the trigger what we're trying to avoid is anything that makes that plant think it's supposed to flower and warm temperatures while well, it's in the bulb form warm soil when you're planting them is going to probably confuse the onion and make it think oh when i get this you know 2 months in i should probably initiate my flower buds we don't want that we're trying to prevent that so we would it would be best if you're planning to do green onions from the grocery store to plant out in your garden do them in the first week of November as well and yes, it works.
2: And if, if you planted a regular onion, a walla walla onion, and you, and you planted it out there in November, um, could you snip off the tips of it like a little eighth inch here and there to, to oh, use yeah. this Onions or yeah, is people,
0: it yeah, or? You could do a limited amount. If you did too much, of course, you'd be, you know, draining the energy from the bulb, but generally they're very vigorous plants and you can go out there and you can take one long leaf and cut it and use it in your recipes. It'll taste just fine. So people do that. They can use them as green onions. A lot of people plant their onions closer together than is optimal and then thin them out and use them. So if you, I'm always suggesting four to six inch spacing in the row for most onions, a little wider for big ones like Walla Wallas, but for your basic Stockton yellow red burger, six inch spacing will allow the bulb to get full size. Well, I know lots of people, myself included, who would pull the trench with a hoe. And at first we're very carefully measuring the spacing because that's how we are. And about five minutes into it, it's like, oh, for God's sake, and you're just dropping them in there. And then you take the hoe, and you pull the soil back over them and you realize some of those onions are only two to three inches apart. Well, fine. Just go ahead and let things grow out for six or eight weeks and then pull those and thin them out and use them. And they'll be very good. They taste great. They taste very sweet when you do that because you're typically harvesting midwinter. So you'll have more sugar content in them and uh, that'll leave the remaining onions enough space to develop properly. I know people who are very diligent about their spacing and their thinning and things like that. I'm terrible at it. So (laughs) typically I'm trying to figure out what's the best way. I prefer to plant further apart but it doesn't always work out that way. So I prefer to figure out some way I can use those little seedlings. I've actually pulled seedlings out that were too close and replanted them uh, nearby just because I don't want to waste the seedling. It's better not to have them too close together because they'll crowd and you won't get good results with any of the remaining ones.
2: So Don, just take a roll of fabric or plastic (laughs) or whatever it is. And punch holes every six inches, and then row that down your row when you've done it and put them in the holes, and then take the thing up. And I've be seen perfect.
0: A, a variety of uh, very clever methods for spacing. When I saw seed tape uh, the first time in a catalog, I thought that yeah. was the most brilliant invention since sliced yeah. bread. <laughs> yeah. It's for those people who get impatient. I can handle a, a, a tedious chore for about 10 to 15 minutes. Beyond that, I just start getting a little faster, like everybody else. All right.
2: Okay. That's wonderful. Don was poking around his website and looking at old things, and he came across this list. It says, "showy flowering plants to naturalize in shade from, what, 15, 20 years ago?
0: I don't think it was quite that far back, but I did find this quick list, and I remember that recently we'd been talking about low water plants for the shade and things like that, you know, shrubs and woody plants. I have a lot of shade. And I know you do as well. And um, I find that there are, I want to have flowers in either dappled shade or heavy shade. And there are some plants that are just very easy to grow in that situation, if if you don't mind a more informal look. So I use the term naturalize. That doesn't mean I'm not continuing to plant them, but many of these are things that will reseed themselves. If you plant them once or plant them every couple of years and let them go to seed, they will scatter themselves and show up. And Some are higher water and some are lower water, but there's just a handful on here that I think are really good choices for people to consider. The Corridalis is one most people don't know. Corridalis lutea, and I don't have a common name for it, but it has foliage that looks like columbine and yellow flowers and little spikes and it happens to scatter its seed very happily I'm told in rainier climates it's actually kind of invasive but not here it just sort of clings to the shadier parts of the garden and it's a very pretty plant I mentioned columbine columbine is a plant that will actually reseed if you're not too fastidious about removing the seed heads so a lot of people like to groom and deadhead and if you deadhead naturalizing won't occur deadheading is the.
2: you can deadhead and then crumple up that seed pod and sprinkle it over the nearby thing i do that all the time with my
0: um, sure i mean a lot of people i I think a lot of people are trained to deadhead because they've learned this basic of plant physiology that if you allow it to go to seed it'll stop blooming some plants that may be true but uh, for the most part i just think it's actually busy work that people enjoy doing in the garden columbine the the seeds are more or less interesting looking it will scatter itself they're very slow to germinate but if they have little open areas let's say you let's say you have a ground cover of australian violet or or something like that and you're watering it enough
1: yeah,
2: yeah
0: you've got enough of it to to make a reasonable cover but you have a few open areas columbine will pop up in the open areas digitalis Foxglove, very, very easy to grow. It's a true biennial for the most part. You plant them now, August, September into November to bloom next summer, spring and summer. There are some that bloom the first year, but for the most part, digitalis or foxgloves are a a plant you plant this year for bloom next year. Long spikes of blooms, very classic flowers that most people know. Hummingbirds love them, by the way. So interestingly do butterflies. I've seen swallowtails coming into the shade to go to the digitalis very poisonous. Be aware of that. Fox love digitalis. Don't eat them. So there's, you know, do some research if you've got kids or pets around, but uh, it's one that will happily reseed itself if you allow it to. Myosotis forget-me-not, oh, it will scatter itself very happily. And you can buy them. I always sell them in six-packs or single pots in the fall and the early spring because they're that beautiful blue flower. Everybody knows forget-me-nots when they see them. And they'll reseed themselves quite a bit to the point of becoming mildly annoying if you have an, if they have enough open area. Now, if you've got other ground covers, no, they'll just become part of that cool mix of flowering plants for the shade. And I just put the one whole category of violets. Yeah. Viola odorata, Viola heteracea, Viola labradorica, those are three in particular. Viola odorata, I wouldn't sell or recommend simply because, one, you'll never be rid of it. It definitely not only reseeds, it sticks its seed down in the ground. It's a great example of cleistogamy. C-L-E-I-S-T-O-G-A-M-Y, kleistogamy. It's cleistogamous, which is a term for plants that do that. The flower bud comes out as we get into the warmer part of the season, doesn't even open into a flower. Peanut is another good example, shoves itself down in the ground and forms its seeds right there. Just putting the whole next generation of seeds of viola odorata next to the original plant. You can take out, you can spray, you can rake, you can do everything and kill out all the viola odorata in your garden, water, and up will come a whole nice new crop of this plant.
2: So that's the sweet violet, right? Yes, yes. And that's the one that gets the little um, di- distorted, deformed leaves now? That's something- the big
0: Right that's the big Probably. issue there's there's a gall midge that attacks the foliage that makes them look very unsightly so not only are they you know permanent and and mildly locally invasive in your garden they look rough as we get into the warmer season the new growth is badly affected by this gall midge and there's nothing to be done about it but and that's the classic one it's the fragrant violet that people know viola odorata tells you what you need to know about it but viola heteracea which is actually misnamed it's a different species but that's the name it's always sold under now Australian violet. It runs. It doesn't really recede as far as I can tell as much as just runs here and there by these these stems that run across the ground and root. And it only fills in around other plants if there's space. So I don't consider it invasive, except in the sense that it will fill available space. It's not something that's going to run over shrubs and engulf them or do anything like that. It's got pretty little bicolor lavender and pale lavender flowers. And they're pretty much all the time, whereas the viola odorata is heavy spring only. And it's a very cool little ground as long as it has adequate moisture. And viola labradorica is very similar, just has a burgundy colored leaf and a darker purple flower. So these are violets and they're easy to grow in the kind of woodsy environment that gets reasonable moisture. It doesn't have to be high moisture but they're not super drought tolerant. You know what is drought tolerant? Bulbs and there are bulbs that will naturalize very happily in the shade including bluebells spanish bluebells that's formerly scylla now put in the genus hyacinthoides i'm told (laughs) in the pacific northwest that uh, these are invasive here they just happily fill in shaded areas and i wouldn't call them truly invasive spring starflower, which has gone through at least four different name changes in the years i've been in business nowadays it comes in under the name tritelia formerly Ifyion. At times it's been classed as Brodia. Take your pick. It's a little star-shaped blue flower that multiplies and reseeds. So you get it again fills in. If there's a niche, it'll fill it and it's a great choice. And so are some of our native Brodia bulbs, which you can actually buy in garden centers as well. I'm going to mention one, but I can hear the howls of indignation from the Bay Area as I mentioned this one. Calla lilies the regular old white calla lily zantedeschia not not the colored full ones that you see in florist shops regular tall white calla lily will happily grow in the shade or in a fair bit of sun it will spread here it's invasive there so that's the big difference it's a garden uh, multiplier for us not really a thug but it you know it comes back and it increases In the Bay Area, anywhere there's sufficient moisture through the summer, it's becoming a real problem. And it is a plant that I expect will be a problem there and not here because I don't anticipate us having more moisture in the summer. So if anything, it'll just be one of these garden nuisances with a beautiful classic white flower in the shade if you happen to like that kind of look. But it's a lot bigger than the other things I was talking about.
2: So there's this plant. It's a bulb, I think, or a corm or something. And it's got strappy leaves and then out of the middle grows a stalk and at the top of the stalk there's a starburst and it's usually pale blue or white or could be could be darker blue on the more modern ones. And is that one, I, it's always in the sun that I see it. Well, that's where I see it because that's where I'm looking. Is that one work in the shade too?
0: If it's what I'm thinking of, if you're talking about Scylla Peruviana, which is, the, um, uh, which is a beautiful blue flowered Scylla, uh, that does not very a well. It's, not yeah. a
2: it's the yeah. uh, Niger lily? Who? Niger lily?
0: Not sure what you're referring to. Sorry. So we'll have to look it up and answer that question on a oh, subsequent yeah, show. It's the
2: most common front yard plant you've ever seen. <laughs> and it, and it, it just makes these starbursts on stems. Looks like fireworks.
0: Uh, okay, Don is going to Google to see what... Lois is referring to because she's using a common name. I
2: am, because this um, was something my grandma had.
0: Yeah, I have no idea. All that's coming up is tiger lilies, so definitely not a tiger lily. So this is the problem with common names. So we'll figure that one out and refer to it. Perhaps. I'll
2: ask you next time. There you you go. Can cut out this part. You don't.
0: Yeah, there's lots of bulbs at work. I mean, this is the thing. Uh, we think of bulb, flower bulbs, and good time for this because flower bulbs will be showing up in garden centers usually mid-September. Really better to plant them October or November. So we'll certainly talk about it then. Some of them will take shade. Some of them will not. So it's important to know which ones will. And some of them will increase quite freely in the shade and become. A bit of a nuisance if you like. Now my daughter years ago, I've told this story before, was uh, fond of taking packets of seed and bulbs and going out and planting them where I didn't see her do it so it was like a surprise for dad. And one that she planted was snowflake, Leucojum estivum. Leucojum is um, a bulb that has a nodding white flower that's similar to the snow drop that people grow in colder climates. Where she planted that when she was a kid 30 years ago I now have a stand that gives me 40 or 50 blooms every spring. It just comes up and blooms with some Scylla hyacinthoides nearby and uh, gives me this pretty flower and then it's gone. So it's come back for decades. It's increasing. It's in total shade and it's doing very well in that situation. So I think of her each time of her amusing habit of trying to fool dad by putting a whole packet of bean seeds in the shady garden border or planting an entire packet of sunflower seeds once out in the middle of the garden. That was hilarious. Uh, But this was one that has really persisted is this one bulb that she stuck in the ground all these years later with dozens of flowers. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore.
2: And Lois Richter here at KDRT-LP 95.7
1: in Davis, California. I see skies of blue like much more than I never knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful.